0: Remember being in one of the darkest and loneliest times of my life and I was going through a Bible study about hearing God's voice and in my Bible study in my daily devotional that I was doing that week I remember clearly just in my prayers feeling like I was in a boat and God was just calling me out to just be with him and through that I can just remember every time my mind wandered to just eyes on him and every time my mind watered, it felt like I was slowly sinking into the water. But every time he reminded me, it was eyes on me, eyes on me. And since then, every time I just feel alone or in any little moment, I just simply like, Lord, my eyes are on you and just pointing back and back to you every time. Good morning. My name is Sanjay Merchant, and uh, it's been a while since I've been here, since the the quarantine started. Um, if I don't know you, if we haven't met, because it's been a, a very long time for me, I'm a professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, but this is my home church, if you can believe that. Um, and so <laughs> it's great to be back. Um, my heart is, is, is here, so uh, I just feel full just being here in town and... and uh, you're here in town all the time, so you're like, it's not that big of a deal, but I feel great uh, being here. And it's great to be out of Chicago. Um, It really is, because your snow piles are adorable. They're so cute. each side of my driveway is at least, I was just telling Pat, is at least about five feet. And uh, we just gave up shoveling. We're just driving on the snow. It's just not even worth it. And, and, you know, at the grocery store where they get the big plows, because you got so much, you know, pavement, they have to get the big plows. And they make those huge piles, you know, when you get a really bad snow. They're about 12 feet high. at the gro- Those won't melt till, till May. Anyway, that's, you know, life in Chicago. But uh, anyway, it's great to be back. Our passage today is from Luke chapter eight. So go ahead, go ahead and open your Bibles or your Bible app. We're looking uh, today at Luke eight twenty-six through 39. And uh, we'll read it, it's, 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 it's a long passage. I really hope that it's encouraging to you today. Um, it's amazing what Luke tells us about the life of Jesus in, uh, in this story and the preceding story. So before we get to Luke 8:26 Luke tells us this really amazing story about how they were in Galilee Jesus with his disciples were in Galilee and they crossed the Sea of Galilee and I know that you know this story they're crossing the Sea of Galilee and a tremendous storm swells up and Jesus is asleep right and the disciples these are experienced fishermen they know when it's bad And they say, Lord, we're gonna die. Do you not even care? He's asleep. Jesus has so much peace, he's asleep. And Jesus is almost annoyed to be awakened, right? And he wakes up and he speaks peace over the sea and the sea settles down and the disciples wonder, who is this that controls the wind and the water with his power. Who is the, they've seen Jesus do miracles already. They've walked with him. They've heard his teachings. And at this, they are so stunned. And so that's the crossing of the sea. And when they get to the other side, they get to an area called the Decapolis. And so uh, I'm reading again in Luke 8, 26 through 39. It's a, it's a longer passage, but this is what it says. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes. That's the same area as the Decapolis, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirits to come out of the man, for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told, uh, told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. All right, so now the first big question, if this is your first time encountering a story like this, what on earth are demons? And we know some of this from mythology and science fiction. But biblically, according to God's revelation, these things are real. What on earth are they? Well, fundamentally, demons are angels. And angels... Are creatures not made in God's image like humans, but other sorts of conscious creatures who are appointed to serve God. So, I think we have a slide that says such a thing. Right after this commercial break. There we are. Angels are spiritual beings appointed to serve God. Demons are angels who have forsaken that appointment. Okay? Easy enough. Now, what does it mean to be a spiritual being? We could get Pretty philosophically deep about some of these things. But a spiritual being would be, let's say, not a physical being. So we're physical. Here you go. We're made of matter. We're material. You can push on me, apply physical force, and I'll fall over. You know, that sort of thing. Okay. So physics applies to us. We're biological beings. Spiritual beings, physics doesn't apply to them. They're not physical, right? So, God is a spiritual being, the quintessential spiritual being. God is a maximally great spiritual being having no limitation whatsoever. So with regard to his power, unlimited. Unlimited power. With regard to his knowledge, unlimited. Unlimited knowledge. With regard to his presence, unlimited presence. Demons and angels are spiritual beings, but not in that sense, not in the unlimited sense. And sometimes people, they misunderstand this. Uh, They think that Demonic forces or angelic forces are somehow powerful in the way that God is powerful. Not even close. They are limited in power just like you and me. Okay? So we are physical beings limited in power. There are some things that we can do physically. um, You might even speak of like intellectual power. Like do you have the intellectual power to understand calculus? Some of us say, yeah, sure. Others say, I'm not really sure. Right? Uh, So there's physical power. There's intellectual power. There's emotional power. Do you have the emotional power to withstand a crisis in your life? The emotional strength, maybe, maybe not, right? So there's different notions of power and strength. Again, God is unlimited. Angels and demons are limited. Now, they are quite powerful. And if you see the acts of angels and even demonic acts in the Bible, you see that they're quite powerful, but by no means unlimited. So demonic power in no way rivals divine power. Not even close. Okay, so we are limited in power. Angels and demons are limited in power. We are limited in in knowledge. You might know quite a few things. You might spend your life studying and learning as much as you can, but you know that it's always limited. And in fact, we have this experience, the more that we learn, we realize the more that we don't know, and it's just like an insurmountable pile of things to know, you realize grasping all of knowledge is well beyond our ken. Not for God, God knows everything. Angels and demons might have quite a bit of knowledge, but again, they're not all knowing, limited in knowledge, but also very importantly, limited in presence. So, just keep this in mind. There is a sort of head of the demons, known as Satan, right? He's not everywhere. He is not omnipresent, as God is. Uh, Though he's a spiritual being and is not physical, he still has a localized presence. So, where exactly is he? We don't know. The Bible says that he is roaming about the earth and this sort of thing. And so, we see little glimpses of this. In this story that we read about the demoniac at Decapolis, he is filled with demons. They are localized in him, and they identify themselves as legion. And that should remind you of a Roman legion. These are Roman times. Roman legion was about 6,000 men. Legions could be a little bit smaller than that. You know, if people died in battle, they wouldn't necessarily always refill, but I guess at maximum strength, they'd be about 6,000. So is that what that means? There are perhaps hundreds, if not thousands, of demons localized in this man. It's shocking. That's a pretty scary thing. So that's the first important question. Now, I like to contextualize these teachings and place them in the bigger context of biblical history for this purpose, so that it would be clear to you and so that you can really begin Uh, If you haven't yet, um, many of us have, but if you haven't yet, really become a consumer and an understander and a reader of the whole of the Bible. One of the problems with being a Bible reader is that it's not chronological. It's so foreign to us. Sometimes it's decontextualized. This is a real problem with, you know, reading a few passages here and a few passages there. You don't really get the big picture. And you wouldn't pursue any other area of knowledge that way, right? Like if you wanted to know, sometimes I tell my son this because he's a big Star Wars geek. If you wanted to know the whole canon of Star Wars, what would you do? Well, my son has done it multiple times. And with friends that haven't watched any of the Star Wars movies, he'll bring them over. And they'll watch and they'll spend weeks doing it from the earliest to the latest. And as we know, if you know anything about those movies, they were made out of order. So he watches them in order. And he makes sure that we know the whole canon from beginning to end. He wouldn't be satisfied to watch a little clip here and a little clip there next week and a little clip there the the third week or something like that. And then speculate, how did you feel when Chewbacca said, oh, it made me feel, yeah, no. Uh, I want to watch the whole thing. I want to understand the whole context. So I'm going to take a step back to the Exodus. It's a long way away from Luke. And if you know me, that's kind of my M.O. (laughs) But it's important, and I, I hope it'll be worth it. So we have a map. Now let's think about biblical history just in very broad terms, very broad and quick terms. It begins with a primordial man and woman, Adam and Eve, in fellowship with God, the God of the universe. There is no other God. There are no other beings that are relevant. There is God, and there is his beloved primordial couple, Adam and Eve, made in his own image, right? And as we know, in the garden, that fellowship is fractured by means of sin. Adam and Eve leave the garden. And then much of the rest of the Bible is about the spiraling, fracturing, and devolving of humanity. And uh, we read that through the course of Genesis. Uh, God does not abandon his creation, however. He does not abandon humanity. He presents himself again to Noah. And then later on, he presents himself, very importantly, to Abraham. And then the faith of Abraham is passed on to Isaac, his son, and to Jacob, Isaac's son. So you got the God of, uh, the, the, God of the universe, after the fracturing of humanity, presenting himself to this single man, Abraham, and saying to Abraham, I will be your God, and I will fulfill my promises in the earth through you. And he becomes just the God of Abraham. And again, that faith is passed on to his sons. And then Jacob's son Joseph, through a variety of, uh, or series rather, of very unlikely events, becomes the highest authority in Egypt except for Pharaoh. And there's a great famine where Jacob's family is living. So Abraham's descendants, the worshipers of the true God, end up in Egypt. And that's where. The book of Genesis closes, so if you remember that. Well, then something very interesting happens. There's actually a 400-year silence. God does not speak again for 400 years. And in that 400-year gap, the family of Jacob becomes a nation, a full tribe. And at this point, they've been enslaved by the Egyptians. They're no longer friends with the Egyptians. A lot has changed, and that's where we open the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, after a 400 year silence, God speaks again to Moses and Aaron, and he presents himself once again, now very humbly as the tribal God of the Hebrews. He is, in fact, the God of the whole universe, but he presents himself as if he's one God among others. Where are the other gods? The Egyptians have their gods, and the various Canaanite tribes have their gods. You see some of them there, like uh, up in Canaan. Uh, That's actually a variety of tribes, but the Moabites and the Edomites, you probably have heard those names from biblical history. They've all got their gods. And how does the world work? Our gods lead us. We worship our gods, and to the degree that we're strong, our gods have victory. To the degree that that we're weak, Perhaps we haven't venerated our gods sufficiently, but it's our gods against your gods. And let's fight it out. That's the tribal attitude of the ancient world. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the whole universe, presents himself as the tribal God of the Hebrews. How significant is this God? He's insignificant. If he were powerful, his worshipers wouldn't be slaves, would they? The gods of Egypt are powerful. But then we walk through the book of of Exodus and we see what happens. Let me just give you a couple passages as we walk through. When God presents himself to Moses and Aaron as the tribal God of the Hebrews in Exodus 6-7, he says, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the, the burdens of the Egyptians. And you know the The book of Exodus, what happens? God brings a number of plagues against the Egyptians. He exposes the Egyptians, or rather the Egyptian gods, as false gods, shockingly to the Egyptians. And he brings the country to its knees. At first, Moses and Aaron are doing these miracles. They take a a staff, a wooden staff, and throw it down in front of Pharaoh, and it turns into a snake. But the Egyptian uh, magicians do the same things. They turn water into blood, just like Moses and Aaron. They do the same things. They keep pace for a while. And eventually, they can't keep pace anymore. And God keeps upping the ante again and again and again, bringing more and more miracles, more and more plagues. And eventually, the Egyptian priests say in, uh, in, in Exodus 8, 19, they say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. We can't do these things anymore. We can't keep pace. And the power of the Egyptian priests fades away. Now, What were the Egyptian uh, priests and magicians up to? Was it just sleight of hand? Was it just trickery? Probably, but there was probably also real spiritual power. There's probably something that was very, very real that actually worked so that when the Egyptians uh, prayed to their gods, it actually did work. That's why they did it. So there was real spiritual power in it. But the God of the Hebrews is squashing this power, first outrunning it and then devastating the nation of Egypt that trusts in those false powers. Well, of course, then we know we're still up in the upper left. That area called Goshen is where the, uh, the Israelites were, were living. God leads them to the Red Sea. Now, you see that God could have led them up directly across the Mediterranean coast. They're trying to get to Canaan. That's their promised land. God directs them to the Red Sea, and there's a reason for it in Exodus. But in Exodus 14, 21 through 22, he leads them to the Red Sea And it says, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. And so he gave them safe passage through the sea and as you know, when the Egyptians tried to pursue them into the sea, God closed the waters and destroyed the army of Pharaoh. So he gives them safe passage through the sea. On the other side, they end up at Mount Sinai. You see there, God gives them his laws, makes a covenant with them. He obliges them to obey him. And in return, he will make them a holy nation, a holy nation of priests, priests to the whole world, representing that he is the true God to all of the false nations and all of the pagan worship, right? And so, After the revelation at Sinai, God says this in Exodus 33, 1 through 3, he says to Moses and Aaron, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And so God remained present with them in the tent of meeting. They had this mobile temple called the tabernacle, and he was present with them in the tent of meeting. You couldn't just walk in and talk to God. That's not how it worked. The high priests, under very strict regulations, was permitted into the tent of meeting to meet with God occasionally on behalf of the people. But at least the true God of the universe was present with them. And for that reason, this traveling nomadic tribe was protected. And in fact, they were not only protected, but they were given land, they were given an inheritance, they were given wealth, they were given space to worship in this very dangerous, dangerous, ancient pagan world. So God's presence was with them. Later on, King David uh, is going to be given a promise that he could build a temple, but David doesn't build it. His son Solomon builds it, and the presence of God goes from being in the tabernacle to the temple, and the presence of God is with the Israelites for hundreds of years until late in uh, biblical history, the presence of God in the book of Ezekiel leaves the temple. Ezekiel actually sees the presence of God leave the temple and now the city is ripe for conquest. When God's presence is there, they couldn't have been conquered. And the Babylonians threatened them for many, many years. When God leaves, the city is raised, and they are deported into captivity in Babylon, just like they were in captivity in Egypt Many hundreds of years before. And guess what? At that point, there's a 400-year silence from God. There's another 400-year gap. Until the birth of Jesus Christ, that prophetic gap, that prophetic quiet from God comes to an end. Uh, Hebrews one one through three says this. This is the way the book opens. It's a, it's a it's a real splash for an opening of a book. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed to be heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the act, exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. This is the culmination of all of the prophetic promises. That God has made to Israel for hundreds of years. This is the culmination of God's presence with Israel in Jesus Christ. It all comes together. So, if you understand the biblical story from Genesis through Exodus, through all of the wanderings to the conquest of Canaan, through the kingdom periods, David and Solomon and their descendants, and then eventually the Babylonian captivity, all of that is summed up in Jesus Christ. So, now that we have that in our minds, I know it was a lot we can do some comparison now and we can think about what Luke is telling us here in Luke 8 we can compare side by side the Exodus with the exorcism so in the next slide we'll have some comparison here in the Exodus you remember God presented himself very humbly as the tribal deity of Israel in fact he was the God of the whole universe Late in biblical history, he said emphatically and clearly through the prophet Isaiah, I am the only God. There is no other. There have been no gods before me. There shall be no gods after me. At first, he appears to be a God, one God among many. But he proves time and time again against Egypt and against the Canaanites that he is the only true God and every other false God, every other demonic power pretending to be a God will fall before him. And so Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the true God. In John 1, we find that the Son of God, who is with God and is God, takes on human flesh and humbly presents himself as a mere man. The son of Mary, the son of Joseph the carpenter from Galilee, he is actually God taken on human flesh. It's a very humble presentation. That's not a mistake. That's very intentional. Again, if you know your biblical history, you're going to say, I've heard of this before. God led the 12 tribes of Israel safely across the Red Sea. In Luke 8, Jesus leads leads his 12 disciples safely across the Sea of Galilee, right? That's not a mistake. That is very intentional. That wasn't just a, oh, here's something weird that happened when we were with Jesus. There's a reason why that happened, and there's a reason why Luke tells us. He has the same power over the wind and the waves that God had when he parted the Red Sea, and that's why they wonder, who is this? That can do these things. Who is this man Jesus? Wait, can't only God do these things? He's leading them across the sea. And on the other side, what does he find? The Israelites, they found pagan tribes and false gods that poisoned the land. They poisoned the minds and the hearts of the people. The worship of the true God was impossible. And therefore, true human happiness and flourishing and fellowship and wholeness was impossible. And so God had to make space. So he had to drive out these false tribes. When Jesus gets across the lake of Galilee, he finds a man full of hundreds of demons. And what does he do? He does God's stuff. He drives out the demons. Now, one really interesting thing about this is as God was driving out the false tribes and the false worship, he was leading the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob into this promised land. As Jesus crossed Galilee to the Decapolis, he was leading them out of the promised land. He was leading them in the opposite direction. Why was he doing that? Why was he leading in the opposite direction? Let's note a few things. When he got there, the demoniac knew immediately, or in fact, the demons speaking in the demoniac knew Jesus's power and authority over them and knew that their destiny was judgment. He led them out of the promised land. These demons recognize him. Now, Keep in mind, he's among Gentiles. He's not among people who worship the true God or even perhaps know of the true God. Um, how do we know that they're Gentiles? Well, one thing, they've got a herd of pigs. Jews wouldn't have a herd of pigs, right? They wouldn't, they wouldn't be eating pigs. By the way, if you're ever in the Decapolis, try the deviled ham. It's divine. That was terrible. That was awful. That was way worse than I thought it would be. My wife said, I made up that joke on the car ride to the airport. My wife said, don't do that. She was, she was right. She was right. It didn't work at all. But if she wanted to stop me, she should have come. Am I right? Am I right, guys? So, it's just as much her fault as it is mine. But anyway, there you go. I wasn't even sure if deviled ham was a real thing. I was like, is that a thing? I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> they were Gentiles. And he drove the demons into the pigs. Such a strange thing. It's so strange it must have happened. Because why tell us this story? Why make up such an odd thing? When Jesus is doing this, he is showing that he is doing God things, driving out false worship but not bringing Israel into a small promised land, a little tract of land on the Eastern end of the Mediterranean. He's, dri- he's driving them out of what the whole world he is taking his rightful place, establishing God's kingdom over the whole earth. And so this was not lost on the disciples. God was establishing that in Jesus, he was cleansing the world. He was driving out Satan and reclaiming the whole universe in Jesus Christ. The funny thing is, the people of the Gerasenes or the Decapolis, they actually preferred an unbalanced order uh, and familiarity of their community to the peace that Jesus brought. They feared his power, and they asked him to leave. And so Jesus left. Now, thinking of these things, what's our response to all of the things that Luke tells us? Jesus recapitulating in many ways, the whole history of Israel and doing God things. What's our response? Well, first and foremost, we should believe and understand that this isn't just a sort of one-off strange story. Believe that Jesus freed the man from the torment of hundreds of demons. I mean, actually believe that, that that was a historical fact. Believe that Jesus freed this man of hundreds of demons. This is the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario, someone can be filled with hundreds of demons. I'm willing to bet no one's in that situation here because you'd be throwing clothes and foaming at the mouth and breaking chains as this man was. Now, we've got things in our lives, but that's the worst-case scenario. Jesus is able with a word to free him from the torment of hundreds of demons. This man was already dead. He was living among tombs. And when he encountered Jesus, Jesus bears with him real life, true life. He's the true bearer of life. And he brings this man from death to life. I mean, again, this is the worst case scenario. So what does this have to do with us? We have to confess that Jesus is willing and able to free us from the torment of sin. He is willing and able. If it's easy for him to deliver a man from the torment of hundreds of demons, whatever we have going on in our lives is a shallow comparison. And there are some heavy things. There are some deep and difficult things. Let me just tell you about sins that I know very well. Sins that I know very well, that at times I have thought, that's just how I am. It's not going to be fixed. I just have to bear this. Jesus, with a simple word, can easily take command over these things in our lives. Let me just tell you about some things that I know very well. Porn addiction. Violent temper. These are natural to me. Vanity. Callousness. Insecurity. Arrogance. Those are things that I know that in myself, I am really those things. In fact, if you put them on my tombstone, I really wouldn't care because it's all true. And of course, the world wouldn't care either. That's actually the hurtful part. <laughs> you could put them on the tombstone. doesn't really hurt. The fact that posterity just doesn't care. But that's actually who I am in myself. And I have been so um, disillusioned with myself so many times that I've believed that there's nothing that can be done with those things. That's just how I am. I'm enslaved to those things. And yet, I do believe that Jesus freed a demoniac from hundreds of demons, and the man was in his right mind, and it changed him in a moment. The things that God wants to do in my life, he's doing it through processes. He's doing it through a process that a process that continues on with repentance and accountability. And, discipleship. and so it doesn't happen in a moment, but nonetheless, it's the same power. Let me pray, and as I pray, let's think about, I mean, please do this, think about in your own life, very honestly, things that maybe you wouldn't even say out loud, maybe things that you're not going to come up here and say, I hope you'd be willing to share with some, some people that you trust. And as we pray these things, think about them and really believe, really believe that Jesus is able to heal you of these things. And the fact that you're here and the fact that you're still breathing is evidence that he is in fact healing. He's giving us graciously more time to come to him in repentance and and to learn discipleship and to be healed and to be happy, to actually be happy and free of these things. Well, let me pray. Lord Jesus, we do believe that you came in the flesh. And that in you, God's presence entered into humanity. We are bound to you through your death on the cross. You've taken our sin on yourself and given us your righteousness. And now we are in you and you are in us. And in our binding to you, you are sanctifying us by means of the Holy Spirit. You are changing us and transforming us. We don't lie and say that we are without sin. We confess that we know sin intimately and that it torments us. We think that it's going to make us happy. We think that it's going to soothe us, that it's going to do something for us that we want. And it's poison. We realize that it poisons our lives, it poisons our relationships, it poisons our hearts, it hardens us, it makes us callous, and it makes us lose faith. Uh, We repent of that. We believe that you can heal demoniacs, that you can drive out demons, that you are the healer of sin that you can transform us, make our hearts quite different, put us in a sound mind, make us see the world differently, feel differently, want and love different things than what we want and love. And that that power is in you. We don't need to conjure it up in ourselves, but we do need to actively and continually trust that you are the one doing these things. Lord, we're beginning to do that now. In Jesus' name, we pray that by your spirit, you continue that work in us. Amen.